right. I'm John Michelli. I'm Stephanie Hicks, and this is the Corresponding Author Podcast with John Michelli and Stephanie Hicks. Yeah, episode one. Episode one. <laughs> Welcome. So a little bit about me. Uh, my I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biostatistics at Johns Hopkins, and I wanted to start this podcast for a couple of reasons. Um, oh, hold on. I didn't even talk about what I do. Ah. Yeah, talk about what you do. Okay. Well, let's see. I'm a researcher, um, and I research data science education and methods to analyze genomics data. And then I'm also interested in other types of data as well. But so I, I would really consider myself an academic data scientist, which is sort of the theme of the podcast. Okay, so I'm a, an assistant scientist. I'm also in the Johns Hopkins Bloomers, Bloomberg School of Public Health uh, in the Department of Biostat with Stephanie. And I primarily work on neuroimaging data, but I also work on kind of our package development and other, I would agree, data science type projects. So I think that's what we'll be covering here. Things that definitely work in the academic sphere, but are really what we would consider academic data science. So we're going to delve a little bit deeper into what we mean by data science, maybe uh, in a deep dive in another episode, but we're going to kind of just tell you why we started this podcast. So Stephanie, why, why did you kind of think a podcast was worthwhile for academic data science? Oh, so many reasons. Well, one, because I feel like I am different as an academic data scientist, which is kind of how I think of myself. I feel like I'm different than my colleagues who are maybe consider themselves an academic computer scientist or a statistician in the sense that um, I'm interested in not only how to analyze data, which, for example, statisticians and computer scientists have thought a lot about, but really the entire process of data science, for example, um, starting with a question, starting and honing that question and creating that question, a really solid, good question, and then thinking about the type of data that you can get to address that question, and then thinking about the types of analyses to address that question, and then communicating those results. I do all of those things in my day-to-day -day activities, and so I wanted to start a podcast to discuss, A, what are academic data scientists and how are we different than our colleagues, and then B, if you are a student, for example, and you want to maybe be a data scientist in academia with the goal of having mentoring and teaching, including in some of your responsibilities, can you do that? Where can you do that? How can you do that? Can you get funding to do that? What do you publish? What do you write? What do you do? And then also I wanted to start the podcast for universities to help support academic data scientists through the hiring and the promotion and the tenure process. Yeah, John, no, I, I, I agree it? with all those things. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with all those things. Um, I definitely feel like uh, in a lot of respects, I don't fit into the standard academic boxes. I do a lot of software development and things like that. I do a lot of in-depth data analysis and data cleaning, where I know a lot of applied statisticians do that as well. But maybe wrapping that up into a software package, it seems a little bit more in the data science realm and working with larger databases and things like that. But I agree. I think um, we do a lot of things that I think some, some maybe more senior uh, data science or sorry, senior statisticians and senior academics don't necessarily uh, see on their CV. So I have felt for a long time it's a little bit 
um, hard to see exactly where the promotion timeline is, where the promotion trajectory is. And I just wanted to kind of give a discussion of that with uh, some other data scientists in academia, because we definitely exist. Uh, I think some people would find maybe the name academic data science, uh, data scientist as something like, oh, I didn't even know if they existed. And I remember we had an alumni event here at Hopkins and we had alumni here and now like chairs and other departments and their questions were, you know, how do we hire good data scientists? What, what is a good data scientist and things like that? And I think that a lot of those departments have people like that, but keeping them can seem kind of hard because showing them the trajectory and that there is a maybe a different path for them that they haven't seen before can be possible. I think that's some things we want to bring up kind of during this podcast and yeah. get people out there kind of talking about it. Yeah, I mean, career trajectories, I would love to have an episode on that. I feel like if you are a data scientist sort of hiding out in one of the established departments, engineering or business or statistics or computer science, it's very interesting to me to see the paths that various people took to get here. And I would love to have a discussion on the various ways that you can become sort of an academic data scientist. I think it's a wandering path for sure. <laughs> And what it, when is when is the day going to come where you're you're not hiding out you're you're you're, yeah. you're out and about? I mean, I guess it depends on if you're in a university that values that type of scholarship, right? No, I I agree, and and other people are creating departments about this, and mm -hmm. um, I'd be very interested to hear from people who are in uh, bona fide department of data science and and how that's been hashed out because those departments either they're rebranded departments from that are that are much older than than the time they became a quote-unquote data science department or new departments i'd be very interested to hear like what is laid out for you because it's kind of an unknown uh frontier for some of those people yeah yeah so why are we why are we the corresponding author though Oh, right. We had a great discussion about some possible titles for this, even just academic data science. And as any good data scientist does, we decided to gather some data on getting feedback on how to pick a title for the podcast. So we put out a Twitter poll and the idea was to list some names that we had thought would be pretty interesting and the corresponding author won. And I think that's a good, st I think that I really like the title for several reasons. One, because it's got the word author in it. And as I am an academic, I write a lot and I'm always thinking about writing, whether it's manuscripts or grants or data analyses, I'm always writing. And so having the word author in the title, I felt was very representative of what I do. And then the corresponding author comes from the term when you are corresponding as an author to submit a journal or submit a manuscript to a journal, you correspond back and forth. Like the journal may say, hey, can you fill out these forms? Or hey, can you respond to these reviews from the people who reviewed your manuscript? And I often find the person that's in that role tends to do a very good job communicating. And as communicating is such an important role in data science, I thought that was a very fitting kind of name for the, the aspect of work where we take what we do, whether it's writing a shiny app or creating a shiny app, or whether it's creating a PowerPoint presentation or a data analysis or a paper and communicating those results. And so the corresponding author is somebody who definitely does a lot of communicating between the journal and the your co-authors, for example, on your manuscript. 
Yeah, I'm trying to bring up the poll here. It was a definitely academic data science. Hello, data science. Uh, the corresponding author. Yeah. What was the other one? There was oh, the last one was reverse scooped. So right. I don't think everybody knew what that was. Yeah, can you explain um, that one? Yeah, so reverse scooped, I guess it might have been from Rafa Irizarry uh, in his time here, was that, uh, you know, getting scooped is you're developing a method and uh, somebody else uh, develops that method first and they kind of publish it first before you, right? The, the paper is kind of already out there before yours and it's kind of your idea, maybe similar, or maybe not your idea, but similar ideas. So it kind of reduces the impact of, of your stuff, of getting scooped. But reverse scooped is when you have published something out, out there and you think it's pretty good and somebody else publishes something very, very, very similar or um, very much uh, in the same vein and they actually don't cite you or acknowledge your work at all. Uh, yeah, so it's like, instead of getting scooped, it's like I published this first and, or somebody else published it first and now I'm trying to publish it. It's, I already published this thing and, and then they just acted like my thing didn't even exist. So, so that's getting reversed. how many times has that happened to you? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I work in such a, like a hot field where everybody's kind of working on the same things, but, um, I have seen, I guess I don't see it that much either because a lot of the papers I will see similar to the, some of the stuff I have published will cite my work and that's how I actually find out about it. Um, or like Google alerts. And I guess I don't, I don't think I found myself in that in that avenue too much, but I have reviewed one or two papers that are in a similar field and they, they make some claims like we are the first or the only to do X, Y, and Z. And I definitely see maybe not my research, but other research that I'm like, that's, that's, that's been done somewhere. I don't think that's right. So I can imagine that. Right. (laughs) What about, what about you? You ever been reverse scooped? One time, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's not a very good story. (laughs) It's another day. (laughs) (laughs) the story was somebody published and said nothing about my paper and i felt bad i had never heard the term though until you brought it up the other day so i thought that was a nice way of describing it yeah no i i I think i have to attribute that to rafa i think so and rafa you know you you should know it. he was your postdoc advisor if that's true if that's where it came from i feel like (laughs) i'm gonna get hit with that he was the not person he was not the person who created it um, you so are right. Rafa was my there. postdoc advisor, uh, but I have no idea who created it, but I'll ask him about it next time I see him. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think right. a lot of times uh, during this podcast, we're going to try to touch on stuff that's like non-academic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, we're going to call that segment um, in the future data science dinner party. And uh, I'm, I, I call, uh, I think we named it that because pretty much when i don't know if you're at a dinner party stephanie and you're telling people what you do you know you don't get in the weeds with like github and pull requests and i don't know it depends on who's at the dinner party if you're talking to a bunch of that's, data scientists they might as well be getting into the weeds that's true that's true you just start pulling out slack and just stop talking in person you just start t- uh, slack texting each other has that actually happened to you no <laughs> i guess I it depends not. what kind of dinner parties you attend <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, um, you know, those like dance parties where you, you, you have on headphones, it's, it's a silent disco, right? Where right. everyone's got on like their own headsets. That's why I imagine like a data science dinner party. Everybody's actually just talking via the internet. 
Yeah. Maybe not. But in a in a in, in a dinner party without just data scientists, right? It's a little bit different. Right. So let so, me check. Is yeah. the idea to discuss things related to anything related to data science or like things that we work on in data science? Things that kind of you work on, like what would you tell someone at a dinner party this week that was like data science related, but in your academic frame, in your academic life, that was, you know, that someone at a dinner party that is non-technical would like understand. So something, it could be something that we did or it could be something else. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Something you read right. or heard about. Yeah. All right. Or like, or like why it's cool and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Um, you want to go first? Can I go first? Oh, okay. I'll go. <laughs> no problem. Um, so for me, one of the things I do as an academic data scientist is that I get to travel and go to other departments and learn about their data science programs. So last week, for example, I got to visit Smith College and they have a department of statistics and data science. And it's actually a really great department. I had heard a lot about it and I've seen a lot of good things come from it, but I had never visited, well, I've never visited Smith before. And I was just so impressed. And I really liked how the faculty there were so enthusiastic about training their students to learn about data science and the skills that they'll need um, to be able to analyze data and think about all the other things related that I mentioned before, such as identifying good questions and the importance of communication. For example, one faculty member has an entire class on communication and um, she has her students build artwork out of something to do with data. And so they have to build tangible products that communicate some kind of result from the data analysis. And I just thought it was so cool. It was very inspiring. Did you see any examples? Yeah, so one of the faculty members, she had just finished um, the final project section. And so her entire office was filled with like 30 different projects. And I was mesmerized by all of them. She was going through them one by one and explained to me which one was. And I just thought it was so cool. It's funny because uh, there's an institute here at MICA, the Maryland Institute and College, I think, of Arts, that that actually does some data journalism stuff. So I always thought that was interesting that, you know, artistic people were doing some data analysis and stuff like that. Because I feel like if you got me in a room and asked me to do something artistic, I'd be very worried um, about the You don't outcome. have that artistic side in you? I, nah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I like, you know, tinkering with things, but... Yeah, once colors and when anything, maybe just anything painting related, I think anything or maybe constructing something, I'd be okay, but painting or like stick figures is the only way I'm going there. Yeah, so this particular course, well, actually, the department sits in what used to be the physics building. And so below is a like a workshop almost. And so they have students that go into the workshop with people who work there full time and sort of design what these art projects are. So they like, for example, if they want to cut pieces of wood, they have access to people that actually help them cut the wood. So they're not just like out there on their own sawing some wood. So that's awesome. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Given that we're in the I mean, school of public health, I don't if, see if I got how on that would happen. No, I could see us maybe getting into the three D the three D printer game. Ah, do we have those in our building? Uh, I think we have them at the under at the Homewood campus. They have them, but um, yeah, 
we'll have to think about that. Maybe we'll have to convince somebody in the department that we need a, a maker bot or something like that. Uh, well, you do know that we just got a ping pong table. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the next step is obviously a 3D printer. So, right. <laughs> we're we moving go. up in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think we can make the case then for some sort of 3D printing. We have to give like some sort of use case where, <laughs> like, I do I do neuroimaging, so I'd be like, well, I really need uh, a 3D model of my brain. So, can you imagine us writing that like grant proposal for why we need a 3D printer? <laughs> I, I'm sure people write in and be like, I use it all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but maybe for the next grant cycle, we'll have to think about that. And where would you submit that proposal? I'm not even, anyways. I don't know. We'll ask the audience. They'll they'll tell us. They'll tell us right. where to where to write that. Yeah. And All you. Right. So, what's your data science dinner party? Oh, okay. So, I work on some data science education, and so what we've been working on is a way to uh, create videos from like scratch, from just like a, a PowerPoint presentation, and. So out there, there's a lot of uh, services that'll take just like words and like, you know, speak them like your Alexa would. So Google, Google's got one. Amazon obviously has one. Microsoft has one, right? I think it's like Microsoft like has Bing, uh, Google, like, you know, you have a Google home that talks to you and Alexa, obviously from Amazon. So all three yeah. of those services like have these or all three of those businesses have this service and, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to test out like which one maybe like gave like the most, you know, person human like uh, behavior. Right. So it's like, if I put in words, does it actually sound okay? Or does it sound all like computery? Oh, interesting. Um, so you just like put in the words and then you test out how it sounds. Like, do you have a way of assessing which sounds the most human like? No, this was, this was, I didn't do a data analysis or anything like, you know, real AB testing or anything. But what I did this week was I, uh, wrote a piece of code that would kind of allow me to take the same text and throw it easily into any one of those services because they were kind of a little bit disjointed um, previously. So I was just like, hey, I want to make this a little bit easier so I can just switch and say, you know, use Amazon or use Google or use, you know, Microsoft and give me the, the audio back. Uh, so I did that this week, which was, I don't know what that's going to turn into or if that's ever going to go into a paper or anything like that. But uh, it was helpful for me at the time. That was my next question. So like, what do you envision doing with that? That's a good question. So we are making this, this software for like other people to be able to create like, uh, automated videos. So you have a slide, slide deck, a PowerPoint presentation, and you want to be able to like make a video of somebody talking over it and be like, this slide says this, this slide says that. Right. Um, so wait, is this for, you're thinking like MOOCs then, right? Yeah, so like these online classes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we want to see which one's the easiest to like set up these services. Like Google has a way to set it up, but you have to like click a bunch of, go through a bunch of screens, set up a bunch of API keys maybe. Amazon, you have to do the same thing in Microsoft. So, you know, if someone wants to say like, hey, I already have an account with Google or I already have, have this account with Microsoft and I want to use that versus like Amazon, we should give that, we can give them the flexibility to switch back and forth. That was the utility of it. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Do you have a favorite? 
Um, I like Google's APIs really well. Amazon's voice synthesis, that I, th- I think, is really, really good. But Google, like, is just like, hey, we have, like, a service. Like, do these three simple things, and then it works. And I'm like, okay. And they usually That's give nice. you a lot of free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I mean, I mean um, that kind of stuff, you're like, you want to you try before you buy, right? And so you have, like, a limit on the number of words or characters it will read? Or how does it work? Yeah, like, Google gives, I think, like, one million characters free every month for their uh, Google or their voice synthesis. Amazon gives you like five million free over the first year, but I'm like well outside that limit. And then um, <laughs> I, I know Microsoft has some free limits too, um, and I don't think there's like I think they're pretty reasonable. They might be similar to Google's. So uh, you know, if I can say you can do it for free, but the voice quality might be a little bit eh. Uh, not as great, which I'm not saying it is better or worse. Uh, regardless of the quality, I think people are going to try the free option first. Yeah. And so how do you handle things like weird words, like ggplot? Oh, that's that's a hard one. So you have to usually break the word down into some of its phonetic like subcomponents. So like ggplot2, right, is a you know standard R package that Hadley Wickham created uh, and implemented in RStudio, like crushes it with. Um, it'll come out as like good, good plot. Um, <laughs> so you, what we That's do awesome. is we, we separate the word into like, uh, literally like the letter G, the letter G and then plot. Oh, wow. So that's, okay, so that's very time-consuming, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, well, it, it's 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 actually a little bit easier than you think because you can just listen to the video and then something will just come out of nowhere. And you'll just be like, what is that? And you go back and be like, like, our, our studio, right? It's, it's one word because that's the, the company's name, but you have to, like, it's our studio, our studio. And it's like, no, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. And the goal so is- it's like our- exactly exactly and at the end of the day hopefully we'd be able to like translate that into like 10 different languages and have it speak in 10 different languages for people's native tongues oh wow yeah i can definitely see how that use case would become useful then really fast i mean for me what i like about it is the automation step because if i were ever thinking about creating a move the idea of having to record all these videos and then suddenly be outdated is just depressing and so being able to have words or text in some kind of text format along with the code itself and along with some set of slides and being able to just knit the whole project into creating the video, that, that's just like so cool. No, I, I agree. And I'll say like I've recorded some lectures for some online courses. Like we have one on Coursera called like Neurohacking. And I'll say this, like you you can either do it one of two ways. You either record all your lectures in like one day or which, Mm -hmm. which then it looks like you just wear the same clothes all the time. (laughs) Oh God. Yes. Or you do it on different days and then like you could have like gotten a haircut or something and it looks like you're a completely different person. Or I guess you could do wardrobe changes. I don't know. Right. (laughs) Do you think people really enjoy staring at somebody when they talk like that? Or do you think they just flip through like the electronic text anyways? I think a lot of people use the electronic text, but the people like, I think I know we have gotten some feedback that some people listen to videos like on the treadmill or in the car. Um, so it's not actually the visual component. It's just like that. It's audio. It's audio. Yeah, that makes sense. 
right? Like podcasts, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> like us. <laughs> yeah. We were thinking about um, something a little bit different where, uh, you know, every single paper when, I don't know, I, I, maybe here's a question for you. How do you, how do you typically read a paper? Oh, great question. I usually give myself like a finite amount of time. I set the time and then I don't go over that time limit because otherwise you could just like spend hours, days on papers. And what I do is I set the time limit and then I start with the abstract and then I go through all the figures. And then I get a sense of what the, I mean, I hopefully got a sense of what the author's main points were. And then from there, if I have questions, I start to dig into either the methods, if it's a methods paper, or the applications and the results, if it's primarily like a more scientific or biological paper, get into the weeds on specifically what they did, choices in their data analysis, maybe, or choices and how that affected their results and things like that. Um, I rarely start just like from the top and go straight through. For me, I find that's not very effective. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I will say the same thing. And it's I think you're a lot more diplomatic in that you say, like, I look at the abstract and the figures. That's the order I go in as well. And then you're like, if I have any questions, I'll dig in. I'm usually like, if I really want to read this paper after that, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Like, if I'm a reviewer, then yeah, I'm going to, like, dig into the details. But I should, hopefully, like, if it's a good paper, if I read the abstract and I read the figures, I should have a solid idea of what's going on. Now, there is the case in which there are no figures. For example, statistics papers might not have figures. It might just have tables and things like that. Um, and I, it's not to say anything bad, but I should have a good sense of what's going on, at least in the abstract. And however, they're summarizing their results. Yeah, no, that's true. But like, this is what I was thinking about is like, if a lot of people read the figures, right? Like, depending on the journal, a lot of journals, you have like pretty detailed captions for your figures, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm saying so if you thinking... said the cap, the caption was the script, and the figures were the video, then you can just make like a video where it's like, them reading the caption to you being like, this is what we're seeing here. Oh, right. I see. So are you arguing that, or like suggesting that people should make these little videos, snapshots or summaries with each paper? I think I, I want to see, I want to try a few for a couple of papers and see if I would find it useful. Be like, oh, like I would just, I would just listen to this on like YouTube for, at first and then see if I want to go see the, read the paper or not. Um, that is true. It would yeah. motivate a lot of people to put more details in their captions. Cause I have seen a lot of papers in which the captions are lacking in details. Yeah. Exactly. Like I have no idea what's going on here and you didn't tell me. So I don't know. <laughs> or it's so complicated that you can't even figure out what's going on. <laughs> oh yeah. Like eight. I love the eight to 10 paneled figure with no letters and like no fonts that are over like 10. They're, yes. they're, they're good. Yeah. Those are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah, right. so I think I think this gives you a good preview of the the tangents we may go on in the corresponding author. Yeah, and I think going forward we're going to have interviews with a lot of exciting people. We'll cover papers as they come out and discuss them. We'll discuss new things that emerge in the academic data science world, and then we'll also talk about a lot of the things that we discussed at the top of the podcast related to why we started the podcast. So if you want to know more about us, we have a Twitter account. Follow us at Twitter at correspond off. There you go. Thanks everyone. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Bye.